everyone. I'm here today with Mr. Amlan Rochadri. He is the head of communications in the Indian Development Foundation, and he's coming from Mumbai right now. So, hi, Mr. Amlan. How are you? I'm good, and welcome. Uh, greetings to all your viewers, and my salutations to all of them. Thank you. Um, so before we start going into the topic, what we're going to be discussing today is the stigma surrounding menstruation and periods and period right. use. Um, but before we go into that, I just want you to introduce yourself a little bit about what you do and what the purpose and what IDF does. Sure. Uh, as uh, my name is Amlan Gaurachobi, that you have already said, uh, I'm from Indian Development Foundation. I had a different, uh, when I started my career, I started as, as a completely different thing. You see, I've done my master's in anthropology from Kolkata University way back in 1983. Thereafter, I joined Air India and I started flying there. And so for 31 years, I was a flyer with Air India and uh, I was a trainer there. I used to train the cabin crew as well as the cockpit crew. I did my train the trainer there. I was nominated by Director General of Civil Aviation to do the safety management systems training there. Having done all that after I retired in 2019, and immediately uh, the uh, COVID pandemic came in, and therefore there was a lull. Two years I was just at home uh, doing nothing. Then I decided when when the pandemic opened up, I said now it's time for me to do something else, not in aviation sector anymore, but at some in some other field, particularly in the field of uh, in, in the field of human uh, development. So I found Indian Development Foundation. I did my got my interview there. I met Dr. Narayan, and we had a very good interview. I got selected, and thereafter I took over. And currently I'm head of uh, communications. I look after the projects, and uh, well, that's how that's what my introduction is. Um, and what exactly? Um, a lot of people who are watching me are kids here so I just want you to explain a little bit about like what IDF does like what are your goals what are some of the things you okay. yeah. Indian Development Foundation is an NGO which has been in the field of uh, humanitarian service the last 40 years it started as Indian Leprosy Foundation way back in 1985 now during that period of time leprosy was one of the most uh, dreaded disease because of misconceptions See, leprosy is a bacterial disease which can be cured completely. There is no doubt about it. But in our times, we have internet, we have smartphones, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, the social media. So the dissemination of information is very fast and very effective. But during those times in the 1980s, we did not have internet. We had nothing. So it had to be done on a basis of a man-to-man, one-to-one uh, uh, interaction, talking to the students, talking to their parents, and slowly bring into the uh, into the fore that well, leprosy is not a very communicable disease. It is completely curable disease. The only thing that leprosy used to have was the extremities. The bacteria keeps on eating the extremities. So you have the de uh, deformed hands, fingers, nose, and that that had a very uh, gruesome look on the person who is suffering from leprosy. So the society was not accepting them. These people would not get jobs. These people were shunned. So Indian Leprosy Foundation started to bring about the dissemination and to control the spread of leprosy. 
and they were very much successful. It was it was about 40 million leprosy patients in India in 1985, and currently we have less than one million leprosy patients in India. And major part of this eradication program, Indian Development Foundation, then Leprosy Foundation, was responsible. Then when our uh, president, Dr. Abdul Kalam Azad, was the president of India, Dr. Nara Nair and the founder of IDF, Dr. A.R. Pillai, who is a 95-year-old young man. I called him a 95-year-old young man. But, uh, there is a reason. At the age of 90, he went into a drawing class, painting classes. And he's a fantastic painter now. At this age, at the age of 95. So he's an inspiration. So he and Dr. Narayan, who's our uh, CEO, they had gone to meet uh, President uh, Abdul Kalam and he said, Why are you only stuck to leprosy? Why don't you bring all the gamuts? And there are so many things to do. So that's the time when Indian Leprosy Foundation became Indian Development Foundation. And from then onwards, we started working on the various verticals. The verticals were education health for all, hunger management, women empowerment, gender equality, and of course, uh, clean environment. That environment thing was way back, there was, a, there was a thrust, but was little. In 2012, we became the consultative, we came into the consultative status with the United Nations ECOSOC. Now, what is the consultative status means? It means that the United Nations has 193 countries where if the United Nations wants to uh, do some projects in those countries, they need to consult the local bodies because any project, you one just, just cannot go and start a project. We have to take into consideration the local culture, the local language, the local myths and taboos, and, and then design the program accordingly so that it has it is effective in that particular culture, in that particular society. So that consultative status. So in India, IDF is the consultative status for United Nations ECOSOC. So now that's what IDF is all about. So currently, we are working on hunger management, UNSDG goals, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7, and 11, and, and 13. These are the areas that we are working on. So that's hunger management, uh, education for all, uh, then uh, health, uh, health and medical services, then women empowerment, gender equality, waste to knowledge how how do you create waste to knowledge how do you create waste to uh, to sustainable development mm -hmm. all these are the verticals where idf is working this is what idf is all about yeah idf is amazing we found like we heard about it through my brother he's currently like 20 oh. but when he was younger like he volunteered at one of like the idf he was an intern yes he was an intern yeah, he was. yes 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 and even though I was only yes, eight years old yes. at the time, I found oh. it so interesting. And like, I feel like it was, we were literally making, I felt like it was making such a difference. So I thought that was super important. Yes, um, yes. So now let me bring us back to the topic. Um, my podcast is about stigmas. And one of those huge stigmas is periods. Um, many cultures sure. have a large taboo on periods and have various customs during it. So can you tell us more about that and provide some examples? Yeah. Um, see, uh, there are a lot of stigmas associated with the menstruation all over the world. We can, we can actually uh, divide these stigmas into two broad classifications. One is the uh, negative stigmas. The other is a positive stigma. I, I call it as a positive stigma. 
but there is a negativity in that also that's a paradox so let's discuss the positive side first so you'll understand what i'm talking about there are uh, cultures in that there are uh, tribes in odisha in india in uh, south india and in uh, sri lanka where a girl when the girl reaches this puberty age and does has the first menstrual menstruation it is celebrated the, the people their the parents they invite people all their relatives and everybody they are called and they celebrate that is a huge celebration the lo the local people are called the food and their festival and dances and music this is actually a way a methodology of informing the world that my daughter now is capable of marriage and now she is capable of childbirth so that's the negative attitude of the entire positive celebration that's the paradox because when a girl reaches the menstruation age about say 10 12 the girl might be menstruating but she is not ready to bear child the internal mechanism the body is not attuned to do child bearing so so that menstruation is not the parameter or the barometer to say that okay now this child is menstruating so she can get married so she can be a mother that's the fallacy but that's how the stigma is that's how the uh, that uh, that's how the celebrations are that is one part of it. the other part of it is there are a lot of stigmas associated uh, with the negative stigmas the basic thing comes from the fact that menstruation is thought to be sinful impure these are the two broad aspect of menstruation where the girl menstruating is thought to be impure at that point of time and it is sinful now you may ask me that why this uh, this thought process has come to we will discuss that little later but uh, the fact remains is these women these girls are considered as dirty so what happens they are not allowed to enter the uh, they are not allowed to uh, mix with the people in the house they are not allowed to go into the kitchen in india they are not allowed to go into the puja room they are not allowed to do the puja they are not even allowed to drink water from the vessel where the water is kept so all this it's like uh, it's it's like you know they uh, for those particular 4 5 days the girl is ostracized so how why it happens why this particular thing happens as there are a lot of theories to this you know uh it started with sigmund freud you, you must have heard of freud right yeah okay uh, freud said that the taboo started with the fear of blood because when the blood flows that fear of blood there's and uh, this blood actually is very gory to look at it's that amount of blood that flows it's very gory to look at so uh it is it's a fear of the blood uh there's a social anthropologist called the shirley lindenbaum who in 1972 uh, brought a theory saying that this is a part of uh, this is a way of controlling population natural way of controlling population but not many people accepted that because in 1972 the concept of population control was not that much all over the world population control uh, came much later in 1970s uh, the thought of population control was not there when these taboos were actually uh, when these taboos happened that population it was required population needed to grow but then she uh, surely led about actually said that this is a natural way of population control but how the how thing is that uh, 
when we go back into the uh, paleolithic culture when we go back into the paleolithic times when human population was a hunting gathering tribe uh we as human now are very organized societal wise we have a society we have a large country we have got we have got physical boundaries geographical boundaries but during those times there was no geographical boundary there was no physical boundary there were small small tribes who were staying in a particular location so these small tribes were hunting gatherers so hunter gatherers were where the male folk used to do the hunting and then they would bring the hunt back and the females in that particular tribe would share that hunt to all of them that is what hunting hunting gathering was so there were the, the three uh, two rather three important things survival one and for survival one needed to have a uh, workforce workforce of course will come through progeneration progeneration progeny so the need to reproduce that was there and then the need to hunt for survival so now what happened was when the uh, girl went into a menstruation the first menstruation the male folks in the tribe immediately pounced upon the girl now with the thought process with the thought process that they need to have more men they need to have more population in their tribe so they could be more uh, proactive as a hunter they could be more effective as a hunter more the people the more the better is the hunt less the people the the less amount less the hunting capability yeah that, that that's how this system works so from that point of view probably surely but when mom said that that continued for long period or so, so though they needed to control maybe that is one of the reasons but then uh, there is another uh, uh, anthropologist called Cleland Ford who postulated that the taboos came up from the fact that this blood is considered to be toxic and uh, toxic and uh, the word that he used was disease causing this is true the menstrual blood per se is not toxic but like any other body fluid when it is with the body itself it attracts lot of bacteria lot of impurities lot of bacteria and these bacteria directly goes into the body right so yeah so therefore the persons having the, or the girl having the menstrual flow is now considered that she is a hot spot of infection she is a hot spot of uh, bacterial uh, infection so that that's the reason why she is impure that's the reason she is sinful that's the reason if she touches something the infection can go into that other side they can be infected so these all things were basically from observations so basically and it is a fact riya uh, that uh, if menstrual flow is not if the menstrual hygiene is not maintained properly the rate of fatality is very high it can cause to septicemia it can cause to that uh, the infection go can go into the blood also so that sort of a thing can happen and uh, a very interesting theory came uh, from uh, a uh, british anthropologist who was from the, his name is professor uh, chris knight he he gave a very interesting theory he said that this uh, taboos basically cropped up from the it was a female led and female advantageous taboo so the females themselves developed the taboo and they propagated the taboos it is his uh, 
uh, his theory. Why is it so? The reason is when we shift from Paleolithic to Mesolithic to Neolithic, we find that the methodology of uh, food changes. We were hunter-gatherers, then we became agrarian. Slowly we learned how to sow seeds. When we came to know that, okay, we can sow seeds, we can grow plants, we can grow crops, that's the time when the agriculture developed. So at that time, agriculture was a small plot. Each tribe had a plot of land. Now, now this shift from hunting-gathering to agriculture did not happen like, okay, today hunting-gathering is stopped and tomorrow we start ag uh, agriculture. It was not like that. It was gradual. So a interim period of time was there when hunting-gathering was also continuing and the females who were in, who, who were in, left behind at the they devoted that time into agriculture. And they found out, oh, that uh, now we have got food, so we have got crops also, so less, less amount of people used to go out for hunting gathering and they used to rely on this crop. So ultimately what happened? The economy went from male-dominated tribal society into a female-dominated tribal society. So matriarchal. So during the Neolithic time, from the Neolithic time onwards, we have a the, most of the tribes that you see or you would see were matriarchal during that period of time because the females con controlled the economy. The economy is food. That's the only thing. So economy was controlled. So now they did not want the male folks to come and touch them or have sexual encounters with them as and when they pleased. So because the economy is in control, so they had, okay, now this is the barrier. These four days you will not touch, you will not do this, you will not do this. So it was the females who actually invented the taboos. It was an advantage for them. But later on what happened was that they lost this female uh, autonomy because slowly it went, at the, then again the society became patriarchal and this female autonomy went into the male autonomy. The taboos remained. But the, now the males brought in not many more taboos on top of that and therefore it became a male-dominated society with the taboos imposed. So that's a very interesting theory which uh, Professor Chris Knight says about the origin of these taboos. But talking of these uh, stigmas and the taboos, as I said, one of the taboo is uh, women are considered to be impure, dirty, they cannot go to that. A across Indian, uh, this is not only in India, this is in Africa also. Yeah. And in parts of, uh, in part, I mean, you'll be surprised here that in, in Japan, even today, in Japan, even today, in Japan also it was considered to be uh, impure. In Japan, everything, Japanese is a Jap, Jap, Japanese culture is something which is a very, very, uh, uh, very, very, uh, what, what I call, very, um, they're artistic. Their culture is very artistic. Everything that do they do is very artistic. So you will see their gardens are very artistic. Their food preparation is very artistic. The way they present their food is very artistic. So Japan is a very artistic uh, culture. They are very art and they're very modern culture. But at the same time, they stick to their to their cultural norms. Like if you go and meet somebody in Japan or if a Japanese people, they bow down and they say arigato. That's how they how they interacted. So bow down. The, 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 the elder bows down to his elder. 
that yeah. junior bounced on to his elder. So this bow down thing is there. So they they are very much uh, seeped into that culture, coupled with the modernization. So when they do anything, the mind, the heart, the mind, the heart, the cultural norms, and the material. So these are the three things which are very important to their mind, the culture, the heart, and the material that is available to them. <coughs> so it is surprising to note that there are very, very few Japanese female sushi chefs. This is a very interesting thing. Because sushi is one art of food preparation where the Japanese feel that the body has to be pure, the mind has to be pure, and the material that is procured has to be fresh and pure. Only then a sushi will taste. So, and Japan, Japan is a country where everything is so very well uh, standardized, fantastically standardized. During my flying careers, I visited Japan many a times. And I used to go to a place called Narita. It's a village. Village in their term, but it's quite a small town with all the modern amenities, of course. Right. So, uh, I remember when I used to go there, I, in my hotel, I used to order for uh, soup, which was um, cream of mushroom soup and uh, chicken noodles. That's what I used to order. I used to love that. And I remember, and the moment I ordered it, I would know exactly what would be the portion, how would it look like, how many uh, pieces of chicken would be there in that noodle, how many pieces of vegetable would be there in that noodle, and how, how much it would suffice my hunger. Japanese people don't eat full stomach. They always eat half stomach, empty stomach. So the portion of the food is also little, not much. Yeah. So in Japan, everything is very standardized. So the sushi is also very standardized. So the bite size, the taste is also very standardized. This, this standardization comes from the fact that they believe that the art of preparing sushi or art of preparing such type of food, you need to have purity, the concept of purity. And they think that a woman menstruation, menstruating is not pure, even today. So therefore, there are very few Japanese sushi chefs that I have seen. And uh, maybe in many places, you will not even see a Japanese female sushi chef. So this is one of the myths of uh, menstruation, uh, or stigmas of menstruation, that we might say. And among Jewish people, like Jew, uh, uh, Israel is a very technologically advanced country. The Orthodox Jews, there are Orthodox and there are uh, the moderates, uh, modern people also. The Orthodox Jews, they have something called as uh, Nida. Now, what is Nida? Nida means menstruating. Okay. Somebody who is menstruating. So the woman who is the Nida, that means the woman menstruating, is not allowed to sleep with her husband for those four or five days because she is considered to be impure and at this point of time she is sinful also now why sinful because she spreads uh she's she, she spreads uh infection and so is, yes please uh this is still prevalent today in some system? yeah yeah this is still yeah yeah yeah, yeah this is still there the, 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 this is this this uh, neither and the, this this particular thing that their uh, wife is not allowed to sleep uh, with the uh, uh, with the husband and it is only after the 
after she finishes her menstruation she has to take a bath yeah that bath has to be taken in a special pool so that pool is called as mikveh so after that after the bath is taken then the life is as as normal so this is the uh, the uh, orthodox jewish culture then we have uh, in what in uh, <clears throat> close to india in india also but mostly in nepal there is uh, there is another method which is called as chobati chobati is uh, the girl who is menstruating is not even allowed to stay in the hut or not even allowed to stay in the uh, house villages in the villages in nepal you, if you know what nepal looks like nepal is a mountainous region yeah nepal nepal is a hilly region so in the hilly region there are hamlets there are villages there are hamlets small aggregation uh, uh, aggregation of villages here aggregation of villages there aggregation. so if a girl is menstruating in that particular hamlet in one particular hut she is not allowed to stay in that hut so what she does she has to do is she has to come out of the house they make a boundary with a sari they make a boundary with that sari and she stays in that sari in that boundary she has to undergo the cold winter night she has to stay out she cannot stay in her food is limited her limited number amount of food is given to her she has to eat from the same plate and the mug that is given to her she cannot bring that inside the house so these are very startling i mean uh, myths which is there again the thought process impurity uh, sinful and and the scientific and that this is the reason so many a times it so happens that the girl might lose her life because of the winter cold or because of a wild animal attack so this is uh, this is a traumatic thing for that particular girl right. so these are many there are so these type of stigmas are there in uh, in africa in india in uh, sri lanka even in western cultures also you will see there are a lot of stigmas as myths and stigmas associated with uh, menstruation all over the world and it needs to be fought with a lot of things um so that kind of brings me to my last question i think you answered i was going to ask you where do these stigmas stem from and i think you were able to answer that um so my last question to you is especially as someone coming from um america where we don't see these like these drastic stigmas very often in our like in the culture and the society i live in um how do you think we can help and how do you think some of these harmful stigmas can be broken like the ones that are detrimental to their lives true uh in the course of my work with uh, idf uh, i myself have been going out uh, to disseminate the information what we what we do is uh, as you know that we uh, we have a dignity kit we have a dignity kit in this dignity kit we have got uh, one years supply of sanitary pads undergarments soap towel and it is given to a girl before we give this to the adolescent girl who is menstruating we have doctors coming with us they lecture them they tell them about these myths that how bad these myths are how unfounded these myths are and that there is not it is not only to them it is also to their parents this lectures have to be given to their parents also it has to be given to the village elders also it has to be given to the panchayat you know there's a panchayat in the village the yeah. uh, the village headman so those people are also given this lecture recently dr narayan had gone to 
a school, a blind school in uh, near Amritsar, uh, where the male, the males of the of of the school, the male students of the school, were also given the lecture because the males also should know that what are the pains and the traumas that the girls goes go through, and how should the males, the peers, should help them. How should they not ridicule the woman or the girl, but at the same time be comfort, comforting her and giving her all the possible help that is required? That is one way. To educate is one way. We are going to be surprised that uh, in places like uh, Tanzania, Nigeria, Congo, even today, the type of things used, they use banana leaves, old newspapers, cloth together, you know. And that is what, and naturally, these, these things are infectious in the first place. They themselves are uh, secondary infectious sub substance. They infect the system, the body, because when the, when the girl is menstruating, the flow of blood comes out, mixes with the cloth, with the, with the newspaper, and then the bacteria and everything creeps back again into the body through the uh, vaginal passage, and it is open. So, and such type of things, such type of things, what we need to do is to make these menstrual things available at a very minimal cost. That's number one. Number two, a lot of things have, again, like for example, tampon. Tampon and the menstrual cup. It's a very, very, uh, very good product. Very, uh, a product which is uh, very uh, easy to use. But at the same time, again, there's a myth associated with this. A lot of people don't want the tampon to be inserted. The parents don't want because they feel once inserted, the vagina, uh, the virginity is lost. Mm. So you can see the mindset. The mindset is things now something that goes into the vagina, the virginity is lost. So this mindset has to come out. If it, if this mindset has to come out, we have to be very proactive in educating everybody. That's number one. Number two, we have to make these products available to them at a very very minimal cost. So that it can be, it, it can be, it is affordable to them. Uh, like we give, we are giving them free for one year. Why are we giving them free for one year? Is to bring them into the habit of using the pads. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we also want to see a lateral transmission. Like the mother of the girl is also menstruating. So if the girl is using the menstruation pad, the mother might say one day, okay, give me your menstrual pad. Let me see how it is. Let me see how comfortable it is. So she will take the pad one day and she will use it and she will find the ease of using it. Oh, yeah. So when they see this, you know, when, when they actually see that the ease of use, the use ease of disposal, so there will be a lateral transmission of this habit. This is very important. The lateral transmission is also very important because we are not only targeting the adolescent girl, we are also targeting the mothers who are also uh, menstruating at the same time and, and, and they are menstruating also. They, need, they also need to come into this habit. If they don't come into this habit, how will they instruct their uh, children also? That, you know, that sort of a thing, that sort of a thing needs to be done. So, uh, to give them this menstruation uh, lecture, to give them this, make these things available to them. Then another very interesting thing is uh, that uh, when you give this menstrual pad, when we talk about environment, these pads have to be manufactured in such, such a way that they are degradable very fast. Otherwise, then we have to install things like insulin. Like uh, we have done this in 
couple of co colleges and schools in Mumbai because the, it generates lot huge amount of menstrual pad waste. Okay. This is a biological waste. If it is not disposed correctly, again, it runs the risk of infection. So therefore, we have to sensitize the schools and the college that you use an incinerator so that these waste can be destroyed then and there. Why leave it to somebody who will come and pick it up in the morning? You know, so there are a lot of things that we can do and we need to do. It is not, I mean, whatever we are doing at this point of time is very meager. But everybody should come together and do it in a war footing because this is one area. Another very important thing is menstruation actually hurt, hurts education. It is, it, it is uh, menstruation actually, you know, in tribal schools and in tribal villages where the girl menstruates, she cannot attend school because of the fact that her uniform could stain because she doesn't have the proper uh, menstrual. If the uniform stains, then how can she study? She cannot go. She becomes a subject of ridicule. She becomes a subject of uh, joke. And people start misbehaving. And therefore, again, everything has a sexual connotation. So there is a sexual connotation. So she fears, next time she fears going out. So she loses her self-esteem. And then slowly, slowly she goes out of the school. Education has taken a hit. Hmm. So this her education is also important. And for her education to be important, menstrual health management is also very, very important in a war everywhere. So what like regions have you guys kind of targeted with these the one year plans? Is it just have you guys mainly focused in India right now? Currently we are doing Pan India, yes. We are currently doing this project Pan India. We target everywhere in India from uh, Kashmir to Kanyakumari. Right. That's that's how Dr. Narayan calls it. JK to KK. That's what he calls. <laughs> that's that's the way he says JK to KK. So we plan it uh, in there. Recently, we had a very interesting uh, United Nations uh, idea for 19 members from Indian Development Foundation represented Indian Development Foundation in the United Nations. 19. Wow. And we spoke uh, the Indian Development. They spoke about everything. They spoke about menstrual health management, everything. And uh, we have got uh, invitations from countries like Uganda to come and help them in uh, birth control, menstrual health management. So let's see how it goes. But definitely, uh, menstrual health management has got a lot of component to it. Management is not easy. We have to touch the root. We have to touch the culture. We have to make a change in the mindset. The cognitive mindset that Cognitive mindset is a mindset that comes from the culture. Right. Way down deep into the culture, the cognitive mindset. And to take that cult mindset out in one lecture is not possible. Yeah, I agree. It's not possible. It, it has to be a repeated. It has to, Like, you know, you give a repeated shock to somebody. Yeah. You give repeated, you poke repeatedly to somebody that, okay, do this, do this. It's like that. Right. So this is a thing which has to be done on a very what Right. Um, I think that is pretty much all that I had. I just think that I want to leave people with kind of thinking about what, now that you've provided this advice, what they can do, what we can do to help, and then try to understand what IDF is doing as well. Um, right. And before I close off, unless you had anything else you wanted to say, um, I just wanted you to tell everyone where they can find IDF, like what are your social handles so that they can keep up with what you guys are doing. 
Yes, idea. We are we are stationed. We are in Mumbai. We have offices in Bangalore and Hyderabad and Chennai and Jaipur. You all can reach us through www.idf.org.in, or you can you all can directly get in touch with me. I am on the phone 24/7. Dr. Narayan is on the phone 24/7. Uh, the numbers. Uh, Ria, you have the number. You have my yes. number. I do. You have my you have my number and you have Dr. Narayan's number also. So anybody wants to get in touch, they can get in touch through the website, or they can get in touch to me or Dr. Narayan. Twenty four seven, we are available. We will do. You 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 give us the you give us uh, the area, and we will go. We will reach. That's that, that's the photo that I have now. As I said, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is what I have decided to do after my retirement. Enough of flying. I have a lot of flying. 31 years of flying, I have seen the world enough of flying, so that doesn't interest me anymore. Right. But yes, this interests me as well. That's yeah, how it is. This is amazing work. Thank you so much. Yes, yes. 